Hello, this is Mars on Life. As always, I'm Ryan Mancini, and I'm joined with me... Sebastian Shug, as always. Uh, nine episodes in, and we still haven't fixed this audio sort of like start recording hiccup. I don't know if you heard it, but <laughs> I definitely heard I don't, it. I don't think I did. I, I, I have received feedback uh, from at least a few uh, sharp-eared listeners about the audio kind of feedback recording and how I sound very slurred. Uh, I, I can remind everyone that I am sober uh, <laughs> to, to a large degree, or at least I have been in the last several episodes. Um, so if there's any slurring, that's on Skype's end, not mine. Um, very, very true, honestly. So I di- Although I, I do keep cursing myself every time on a Wednesday when we record. Um, which, by the way, you can listen to this episode on Friday. We're officially moving fully onto Fridays uh, this upcoming Friday. Uh, so, of course, today is Passover. So by the time you're listening to this, it'll be good Friday. There you um, go. Only but, thing is, I'm Catholic. But yeah. So. But anyway, uh, do just we, to... actually, do we want to give a quick shout out to all those platforms that people can find us? Yes, definitely. So it it took some doing. It really did. But I, in order. Uh, aside from Anchor, obviously, we'd like to give a quick, a few quick shout outs to CastBox. Uh, I believe it's. Hold on. <laughs> Let me just get, I get the list. The... I was going to say, I got the list right in front of me. Oh, all right. Do it up then. Uh, so, yeah, we have CastBox. Uh, you can also find us on Radio Public, there we Stitcher, go. Breaker, Pocket Casts, Overcast FM. Spotify and my personal favorite Apple Podcasts. Yeah, uh, so we we have a little bit of news. Um, I guess a little bit of quick news that we can talk about for a few minutes uh, that you were uh, you were interested in bringing up right off the bat. Yes. So if every single Twitter pundit, uh, uh, if every single if every single Twitter pundit and news source didn't quite give it away, Bernie Sanders has officially called it quits. Now, the uh, the troglodytes on social media would say otherwise and say that his campaign is just stopping at a certain point and, you know, other kinds of banter that fit 280 characters. But I think we kind of just have to meet at brass tacks here and kind of just analyze whether or not this is even going to be continuing at all from his platform. Uh, I kind of wanted to see what you thought about it, considering my overall take. And I think this is something to to really consider <clears throat> when it comes to looking at uh, the way that this election has turned out, but also looking ahead at, you know, anything that you could remotely call voter turnout in November, um, because it, it really I don't think will be called that. Um, I think in a lot of ways, Bernie decided to end his campaign, not because of, you know, losing momentum or losing support or, you know, people that think, oh, well, you know, he has to see that the writing's on the wall because, you know, Uncle Joe is is beating him. I think it had more to do with the fact that arguably if Bernie kept running, uh, it would have resulted in more people dying and what i mean by that is 
the DNC and Joe Biden's campaign were both basically complicit with whatever states that decided to have primaries since, you know, the U.S. started taking coronavirus seriously, which was pretty damn late, if you believe our intelligence community for any reason. Um, apparently, Trump knew about coronavirus as far back as November. Uh, but, you know, that's just it, is that Biden nor any Democratic Party officials were telling voters to stay in. And not every state is like uh, our golden state of California where you can mail by ba- uh, have a mail-in ballot. And mm-hmm. so that makes it all the more dangerous if you're really anybody it, it you know like that's just it is that if you're if you're capable of catching coronavirus you're putting yourself at risk just to either stick it to bernie or stick it to trump um and i think there's something about that that i get it and i think in, in a sad way it's uh it's a reversal of the the old star trek maxim of the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few because you know you 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 can save a few lives now but just know that dropping out to save those few lives now is going to cost is going to cost us big time in the years to come mm-hmm. and i'm i'm not totally ruling out that biden somehow can't win but i give him about as low of a chance of winning as most people were giving Trump of winning back in 2016. I the way I see it uh April 8th 2020 is the day Trump won re-election in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um so I I personally think that that's something that we all need to contend with now and so, so in a lot of ways you've I don't want to say lost hope but you've kind of just come to that conclusion and accepted it as hard as it sounds well i think you know and this is me speaking as an existentialist i i do kind of believe in the whole concept of the absurd and i feel like this is something that we were waiting for all along um which is sad but at the same time whenever i was around groups of people that said oh it's not a matter of if bernie wins it's when bernie wins you know, I would chime in and say, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, they, like, they had those, they had those same, and I don't mean to cut you off here, but they have, it, they had the same discussion points back in 2016 when it was Hillary and Trump. You know, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And even on election night, it's a matter of, you know, when is a fireworks show going to come on? And when she canceled it, it was like, oh, it's in the bag. So, right. I mean, that was just sort of a. Uh, I think that was just sort of an acceptance that night four years ago. Uh, here we are in April in 2020, and we're just sort of accepting it now. I'm not saying that either candidate is fit for the job, <laughs> but um, well, let's face I, I it. Think, it. I think people would have definitely preferred to see Bernie over Biden any day. Because I, I had a lot of people this morning who messaged me, and they were like, oh, can you believe this? Or you know, they would ask me, is this true? Or, you know, in, in, a, in a twisted way, it was reminiscent of the night Trump won, um, mm-hmm. where, 
you know, uh, my roommate at the time had to ask me, you know, I, I think I mentioned this on a previous episode. My roommate had asked me, did Trump still win? And I said, I don't know. Let me check my phone. And it's almost like that same disbelief was among people that had neither canvassed for him, probably didn't volunteer for him, and they probably weren't as much of a political junkie as I am. And I think that was what made it very interesting is that I got average Joes reaching out to me. And and this should be testament to how effective of a campaign uh, Bernie ran. But when you've got people that are rather non-political reaching out to the one Bernie person they know with genuine fear or frustration in their message saying, is this true? Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't understand how that doesn't resonate with the quote unquote average democratic voter. Um, you know, and I, I just, if anything, it just boggles my mind whenever I watch, cause if you watch how, uh, you know, legacy publications and news websites will touch on Joe Biden. It's always a pull quote from him, or it's always a quote that makes him sound coherent. But then you actually sit down and watch some of these interviews, and it's like he can't even get the year right uh, for the Spanish flu. You know, he gets it wrong twice in an interview, and he he thinks he's so great because he just corrected himself, and it, it just starts getting more and more aggravating from there. And I think the last thing you have to think about is with a Biden administration, it's going to be about as ineffective as Obama's was because Obama's administration, you know, all he had to do was put a nice face on it and people loved him. But he had a cabinet full of people that knew exactly what they were doing and nobody batted an eye except, you know, all the cranky people who watch Fox News religiously. Now, that's problematic because that basically gave that administration enough free time to, uh, you know, bail out the banks, protect the Bush administration and carry on business as usual. Now, after eight years of what we had with Bush and then the, the fallout that we're still suffering from out of the 2008 recession, you know, Obama arguably made a lot of things much worse for people, especially middle class people. And and to a certain degree, you know, helping with that kind of corporatization of the arts that has made it so problematic for anybody with a radical voice or anybody with a real pulse on society from getting very far. Um and I just think it's it's, you know, people are, are so frustrated with how Trump's handling coronavirus. And it's like, well, look, Trump doesn't know what he's doing, but he also doesn't he also has a team that doesn't know what they're doing with Biden. He won't know what he's doing, but he will have a team that knows what they're doing. And we will all be in pain from it to some extent. So I, I kind of look at it as, you know, it, it's. Even just thinking about November is, you know, it, it's the last thing on my mind right about now. And, you know, to since we're getting to the 15 minute mark, uh, I'll, I'll wrap up here where I say, you know, I, it's, it's hard. A few minutes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no, uh, uh, like it's already know. 
Yeah, well, it's if anything, it's it's hard to it's hard to fathom debates. It's hard to fathom the conventions. I mean, the Democratic convention got pushed back to the week before the Republican convention. You know, I I kind of look at it like arguably were Joe Biden to amp up his fundraising and to amp up his campaign and to amp up his public image, then sure, maybe mm-hmm. he'll win. If he debates Trump, I don't think he wins. If he doesn't debate Trump, I, you know, that's this is the thing. This is where it starts getting into all the un, all the probability with an election plus that monkey wrench known as the pandemic. And I think that's that's the thing where I start becoming Yoda and you know I start saying things like, mm, "Clouded, this boy's future is." So, uh, which regrettably is from a prequel uh, film. But anyway, you secretly love him. (laughs) You wouldn't have you wouldn't have shit memes if they weren't if the prequels didn't exist. Let's hey, you know what? All all I can say, shout out to uh, Chapo Trap House's uh, commentaries for the Star Wars prequels. It's gold, Jerry, gold. So, and on that note, um, I guess on to the topic for this week's episode. this was something we almost touched on last week, uh, but I, I figured before we get to our first sort of big anniversary episode with episode 10, I thought, given the timeliness, this seemed like a, an interesting uh, subject, especially for two avid readers like you and I. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So... It- you know what? Actually, you could probably introduce this a lot calmer than I can because this subject, you know, and I was even going to pinpoint, uh, tack on to that, not only avid readers, but, av- but avid writers as well. And with this subject, the subject being publishing, you know, I'm just going to clear the air here. The elephant in the room is the, uh, I want to say, sort of the correlation between indie publishers as well as, I want to say, indie author expectations. Now, you know what? I'll just let you go into that. And Well, I, I from my understanding with the, the sort of main point of the topic is the publishing industry and, you know, and granted this also ties in with uh, booksellers as well, yes. but it, it's tying together the book industry, for the lack of a better term, and what kind of state of funk that it's in in response to both uh, coronavirus but also the economy and to some degree it's similar to our our film discussion where uh you know at first i when i was doing research into it my initial fear was no more books are being printed which i don't think is the case i i as far as i know i mean people still have books set to come out this year um it's more like the book tours the book signings all of the the big public events will not be happening um which in a lot of ways it sucks because that means that you know whatever money these books are going to make all that promotion is gone and so you know you'll have public uh publishers as well as authors that are 
probably going to have to rely, as as some people so uh, bittersweetly put it, you know, they'll have to pretty much rely on their social media fan base uh, in terms right. of actually picking up said books. But I think, you know, it, the story also touches on, because there's a, a great story about it in the LA Times, which I had sent to you, um, that touches on not only the publishing industry, which of course you and I have, have talked about in regards to American Dirt, but also uh, just how this is going to impact uh, booksellers in general, which can be the indie bookstores like the Last Bookshop or Last Bookstore rather in uh, downtown LA, or it could mean something like Barnes and Noble, and uh, and of course Amazon. So and, what we're looking at is just a strange disconnect between, you know, people who actually want to get into the publishing sphere, people who actually want to publish something. Where do they go to in order to do so? Uh, not only to sell it, but in order to engage an audience and grow their audience as well. Uh, now, I know we had differing opinions on this. And, mm-hmm. you know, sort of after doing a little bit of digging on my part and you collecting your notes on your part, this may be the first topic that maybe we actively disagree with one another on. And, <laughs> and I know that we're both speaking from two incredibly different standpoints because as someone who's been published as a journalist versus as someone who's been published as an author, that audience retention rate is huge, right? Yeah. And that audience yeah. share rate is equally as large because it brings in customers and clients and new readers that we would have never expected to show to showcase our work to in the first place. Sorry, my argument is that as much as I love to proclaim about being that big fish in a small pond and really sort of emphasizing yourself as being different to stand out amongst the crowd, there's a lot of other big fish in that pond as well, pioneering themselves to these indie bookstores. And in a non-shoe-fisted attempt to um, promote them, even, even though we're not sponsored by them, We'd like to give a quick shout out to bookshop.org. Now, yes. So so this story had fallen into our laps, whereas this independent bookstore, bookshop.org, houses indie authors, much like others that you may find online. It's not so much in the realm of boutique and alternative publishing, uh, but it is sort of a collective base for all of them to. Well, it's. It it it's they sell a lot more than just indie uh, authors. Like like I was looking up um, I was looking up several authors, which by no means m- most of the people I read from are are unfortunately not indie. But I like for example uh, you know they've got a whole like uh, pandemic reading collection mm-hmm. that incorporates books like Albert Camus' The Plague, which by you know by no means is uh, indie as well as uh you know i looked up some of my other favorite authors uh like gore vidal and they had a ton of his books um right. so it's if, if anything I, bookshop it's they're they're more like an alternative to amazon right right about I now is that uh aside from amazon which i'll go into that bookshop is not a publishing platform you cannot publish no. books to their site However, you can find books through their site that have been published through other means. And right. I, well, and they're I, they're like a they're like a mediator between 
exactly bookstores and the buyer you know like they're they they can either forward you to a bookstore that has the book you're looking for or you can just buy it from the website but then that money can go to a bookstore which i think is brilliant like that that's that's where that was part of why i sent that article to you because i was like dude look it's a book it's a book website that's actually helping bookstores Jeff Bezos isn't even doing that to save the publishing industry. <laughs> now, now, here's where my other part of my opinion comes in. And okay. y- y- allow me to kind of morally, or should I say immorally grandstand on my soapbox for a second, because I just kind of want to let you as well as other listeners, what kind of the life of an independent author really is. So mm-hmm. when you're faced with, putting a manuscript out there it's all ready to go you typically want to try to capture as many people as possible with your book in the chance that eh, you know it'll be sold and i mean this all sarcasm you know my tone of voice is is sarcasm (laughs) you know in case you couldn't tell but but really when you publish a book you're not only intending to gain an audience from it you also want to have some sort of monetary compensation for it Whereas bookshops noble efforts of giving you back 10% in not, but not even royalty fees, but affiliate marketing, which is even more so of pennies in the bucket when it comes to people actually buying your books. And again, this is in no way demeaning of bookshop.org's business model. They have a fantastic business model where purchasing a book through affiliate marketing helps other bookstores. Amazon does not, but for the independent author, who wants to get their book out there to the public with a with a 35 to 70 percent royalty retention rate and with a with an online database that's huge? I don't see a problem in utilizing their platform for a little bit of uh, notoriety's sake. Now, would I mm-hmm. do this throughout my entire life, utilizing their platform to get, let's say, not only my books but the people that I work with, my clients' books out there? Yes, because it is their choice to do so. And this is in no way me shoe-fisting my publishing, my independent publishing company as well. But <laughs> it's just it's just a matter of the level expo- of exposure that people want. And right. I, I suppose through bookshop.org that is possible. But then again, like I said, it's not a publishing platform. You would have to publish your book somewhere else for it to appear on their site anyway. So is it good to support online uh, independent bookstores? Of course, but is it effective in you know, garnering that, uh, that author profile that people are frantically searching for when they write and put stuff on the internet? Unfortunately not. And that's where Amazon, uh, you know, takes the lead in that regard because when it comes to amazon's kdp service the kindle direct publishing the drm the digital rights management that can be checked either yes or no and by checking no pro tip you can publish it to other distributors such as google which is again what we're trying to do with our podcast (laughs) which will make it show up in google search results so is it bad to immorally grandstand on a soapbox for sake of getting your name out there? It's Machiavellian, sure, maybe, but it does get the job done in order to 
gain an audience. And I think people really struggle with that personally when it comes to putting their work out there. They want to support the underdogs. They really do. But I feel like in the world of publishing, unless you get picked up by a literary agent, it's not going to happen like it used to. It's not going to be a matter of Lee Israel getting picked up and then having her work be something that just carries on throughout her life because it didn't carry on throughout her life. She ended up being a forger. So I can understand in some ways that it benefits others as well. But if you're going into it for the money, which unfortunately a lot of authors do, and especially during this financial period, a lot of authors are probably forced to do more so than ever, I wouldn't say it's a very viable means, you know, and mm-hmm. that's my two cents on it. Now, I'll step back. <laughs> you stand well, up. I, it's interesting because I, I think I realize where we diverge, and that's the fact that you're looking at it uh, – and I, I love this because you're looking at it more from the point of view of the producer of new books or just books in general. I'm looking at it more as the consumer because – Yeah, and, and me, I, would love, it, I would love to have people buy my books in bulk and just have it pay for my bills and pay for my taxes and everything. But realistically, in the beginning, you want quantity over quality. That's the way right. it goes because you're going to have a lot of shitty work. I'm sorry. That is not going to go noticed until that one thing is eventually noticed. A great way that kind of ties in with with kind of my very negative view of books, or at least my my negative outlook when it comes to books in the future. Um, and that's largely because uh, now you know I'm not one of those readers where I stick by you know the American canon or. I'm not reading from John Steinbeck or, you know, regularly reading 1984. No, um, I, my much like the title to our first episode, uh, my reading, it's a bit eclectic, as you see. Um, and uh, and and, you know, when I look at the book and publishing an author just that the entire industry it, it to me is is the definition of oversaturation because when you do have a world where you have a lot of people that they want to write they can write the fact of the matter is, is you start reaching a level where there's just way too much and oh. the days of being a successful author now compared to what they were even 60 years ago, there's no comparison. Um, Oh, yeah. I mean, you have to look at this in a a matter of, oh, well, Amazon publishes everything, but look at it this way. Amazon fucking publishes everything. So, of course, you're going to... Well, they'll they'll sell. That's the thing is they'll sell just about anything. And I think... Right. And that's the the danger that the publishing industry is in right now, because, you know, we we talked about it with American Dirt, that there's there's a level of, you know, maybe you could call it passive racism in the publishing industry. And there's definitely a lack of accountability with some of the stuff that does get published into book form. Um, You know, I, I, I kind of look at it like. There's a lot of stuff that gets published that's just wrong, 
and that oh, could either be yeah. factually wrong or just the content is so poor either there because it's racist or it's poorly written or whatever it may be that it's like you know it's like the line from nacho libre you know get that corn out of my face like that's <laughs> that's the, the realization you hit there is a lot of should i say shit but again i don't want to come across <laughs> as that guy where you know everything i produce is fucking encased in gold and i have king midas's touch when it comes to picking up a pen and writing a book but and i'm vict and i'm faulty of this myself because in the air of political incorrectness for the sake of humor i have experimented in that <laughs> but you yeah, know what well, but but see that yeah. that's the funny thing that sells as well so as political correctness does. And the thing I kind of like about Amazon in regards to genre to genre specificity, specificity, there we go, is that there are a multitude of genres that you can classify your book under under oh, the meta. Yeah. Under the metadata, there's about 75 plus categories. So in regards to categorizing your book and what audience it'll go to when someone searches up your name, that's already done for you. And I think the whole yeah. streamlined process of doing so is entirely, it's just entirely favorable to someone who just wants to, all right, books out. Yeah. Well, and I, and so the, but the way I, I kind of look at how this industry is so warped and the, and, and now mind you, your average American is not a copious reader like no. you and I are. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, by the end of this month, I'll have read three or four books, and you know that's more. And mind you, I would have done that even without the quarantine and without coronavirus. Um, but it also ties into what your average American is looking for, and I think that's just it: is that the way people are now with books is so. Uh, part and parcel with the oversaturation. You know, this is where you start getting the the people that'll read, you know, books that are suspenseful, and they want to read books that are suspenseful because it takes them out of their reality and puts them into a world that terrifies them, or it just it gets under their gills and they just, you know, they just they love it, you know, yeah. and that could be horror, that could be crime, that could be some kind of espionage thriller. I mean the Books of those genres are nine times out of ten the kinds of books that you regularly see people bring with them, whether they're on the bus, on an airplane, on vacation. And it, it to me, it's never made any damn sense until it finally did. Uh, and mind you, it was only a brief amount of time that it didn't make any sense, and it was in a moment out of sheer uh, – not immaturity, but just I was at a young enough age where I was like, how are people reading such garbage when there's a lot of really great stuff they could read? Oh, this is why. Um, the standards for your average American reader have gone – have gotten so low since what they you know, might have been at one point in history. You know, I – this ties into with where people get their history from, you know, in the well, 2000s. No, no, sorry. I was just going to say you can also take into account that people's tastes have indeed shifted yeah. in to maybe yeah. what they find interesting. And at least a lot of what I've seen with that shift has been the shift from like suspense to maybe like absurdist suspense. So the, the market's 
for genres are getting so they're getting more and more niche as I as I like to put it. Yeah. You know, they're looking for something in specific and when it comes to to big box retailers or retailers what am I saying? Big box um outlets like online outlets that just sort of shovel out this if anyone can do it anyone can do it right. where out of this heap you're going to find something that speaks to you in such a way oh of course yeah well i mean that's that's been me probably every time i've gone on to amazon which is or at least it, it, it was for a number of years where a subject would pop into my mind and it was typically related to something that I'm normally focused on, like American history, basically gave birth to a re- that thinking, or at least when it came to like history, for example, you know, the, that led to a renaissance in the early two thousands of these new history books that were meant to be the most factual retellings of our early history, but also their books that, still have that resounding American spirit that we've kind of gotten rid of in the 20 years since. And that's largely because for as many times as you could write, you know, an 800 page biography or even a little pamphlet biography about Thomas Jefferson, you still can't hide the fact that he was the man who owned people as property. And there's no hero. There's no uh, demystifying or rather, there's no mystifying that. Like, th- this was a guy who owned human humans as, you know, a form of chattel. Um, and mind you, that's the sort of, and this is where it gets kind of political, the sort of liberal affirmation of institutions where, you know, yes, you know, the revolution didn't really do any good for uh, people of color or women, but it freed our country from England. Or, you know, like like it's it it's that kind of mentality that you get with things like, you know, uh, sometimes you get it with activist groups. Sometimes you you largely see it from the Democratic Party. Well, um, it's the, but it's, it's, the, it's the kind of action that spawns titles like ours without breaking some eggs. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, it's yeah, it's, it's kind of like I mean, and, and so. And then on top of that, so, you, you know, you have people that they want to read suspense. They want to read the affirmation of the institutions that maintain us as a society, um, like history or, I don't know, the Supreme Court. And then you start getting the people that they're looking for guidance for their own personal dilemmas, which is how you get, you know, people that want to read books about, um, you know, kind of moral support and kind of like, you know, I, I don't want to see a therapist, but I'm going to read this book about, you know, why I'm a, why I'm uh why I'm tough. <laughs> and I think that that's problematic too, because that frankly tells me that our healthcare system is garbage and you have a lot of people that need to seek professional help, not, you know, read Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah. Um, if you, yeah. If you want to look at the uber conservatist, um, side of that it can be a matter of oh well if we're going to profiteer off of it by selling these shitty books and, well you know i kid you not you're bringing up my next point which is <laughs> that like every conservative with an audience has a book and it's like yeah hey you know why do we need to read candace candace owens book i mean get real um <laughs> 
And, you know, and that ties in with a, a real identity crisis within just the whole field of books, which is, you know, at one point in not to sound like grandpa for a second, but uh, within the last century, there was this idea of a master of letters or, you know, the great American novel that was something that was kind of like a, a, a rallying cry in the United States of, you know, kind of showing off our, you know, our own kind of ingenuity compared with the rest of the world. Mind you, this was pre-globalization, so uh, pre-neoliberal free market capitalism. Um, and so, you know, you had people like, you know, I mentioned him earlier, Gore Vidal, um, Norman Mailer, uh, Philip Roth, the, the guy who wrote Plot Against America, um, Kurt Vonnegut. You know, you had a, a whole series of people, Susan Sontag. You had a whole fleet of people that were, mind you, they were intellectuals, but, you know, they, these were people that were like the best and brightest. And they could really spin a yarn, whether it was about history, gender, politics, I mean, science I'd say, fiction, I'd say, Kurt, I'd say in Kurt Vonnegut's case, satire, which it's funny that you bring it up because that's he's one of my biggest inspirations to write satire. Where, yeah. You know, it's not all intended to be funny. It's intended to be made fun of for the sake of analysis. Exactly. Oh. And and by the way, him and Gore Vidal, I, I can't believe I've never told you this. Him and Gore Vidal were actually close friends. Hmm. Yeah. Um, but this was also something we touched on with uh, with regards to American Dirt, where people were referring to it as the new great American novel. Now, that's problematic because and once again, this kind of shows kind of the dumbing down, I see, frankly, with books where you have an industry that it wants to thrill you it wants to give you misleading information and it wants to medicate you and on top of that it wants to whitewash the world for you and frankly i mean that, that definition that right terrifies there me. that definition right there just kind of encapsulates catcher in the rye for me <laughs> you, <laughs> you have a little bit of that pretentiousness it would have been spot on and you know i'm not saying oh, yeah. that that every great American novel has to be a great American novel, but right, you know they can't all be zingers. Okay, oh, of course. So. Oh, I mean Hunter Hunter S. Thompson, literally he he hinged a lot of his writing career outside of journalism on writing the next great American novel, and he arguably did. Except the book he intended to be the great American novel ended up getting pushed totally to the side and was not published for another almost half century with a little help from Johnny Depp of all people. Hmm. So, you know, and I think that's just it is America, you know, the United States is not what it was when, you know, something like grapes of wrath was written, you know, that, that was considered, you know, the great American novel or the, uh, the great Gatsby, you know, and I think, because we're such a different country now more than ever before, if anything, it's about looking towards the publishing industries – or not the publishing industry. Well, how do I put this? It's about looking at the publishers, mm -hmm. meaning these publishing houses, and thinking to yourself, okay, we're in economic free fall, and the publishing industries – because you know they're the ones that are ultimately going to lose a great they're, – they're kind of like the film industry or the production companies where – 
they're going to lose a crap ton of money due to this depression we're about to jump into. And that's something that's going to make or break some of the smaller, you know, like, like a couple, a couple recent books that I bought, I bought directly from the publisher uh, website because I wanted to help those companies. I'd rather help people that are publishing great material by respectful artists, respectful authors, rather than whatever publishes most of Brian Kilmeade from Fox News, most of his uh, history stuff. You can definitely look at it as as either, you know, the relationship between, um, you know, sort of the author and the publisher and who you want to support. But or uh, the topic you were saying about, like, it could either make or break. That depends on what that publisher is publishing. Right now, if if you have a publisher that absolutely has, I want to say zero, I don't want to say zero quality control, but is very lax about what the company represents. You know, if it's just sort of a jack of all trades, master of none scenario where we'll accept any manuscript, which for all intents and purposes. Well, that's 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 conservative publishing outlets, if I may say so. I mean, that's. And and I don't mean to kind of like I don't mean to kind of classify myself in that regard where I say that I don't do that because I do do that. And I'm I'm not saying that I do that because of my own moral beliefs of, oh, I'm just going to not have any fucking quality control when it comes down to the publishing process. But it's because legitimately people can't afford to either get out there and submit their books to these boutique or alternative publishing services that cost an arm and a leg just to send the manuscript where you will never make that money back in royalties. Right. So it's either you sort of publish everything that comes to your doorstep and pray that one of them becomes the next great American novel, if you so happen to care about that, or solidify yourself as the next Ed Wood of publishing and have <laughs> every book be shitty, <laughs> you know. Well, and, and I think make that's where out. that's where it kind of comes into um, sort of a, a, a radical idea of mine in terms of what could happen because you know I I do follow people that well, well what could happen in in and again I don't mean to cut you off again but in conser- in the conservative publishing where you can publish anything. You've opened up so many more doors as in, hey, these are different revenue streams because a a percentage does have to come back to the publisher. So if you have all these books out there at once and even a fraction of them sell passively, which is, I feel, a lot of the reason why people want to go into bookmaking in the first place Mm -hmm. is that that income that 24-7, it will generate no matter who, where, and how that sale is made. Right. But I I think that kind of the the radical territory that I I kind of start waiting in where I look to the future, I look at uh, journalists or artists of any kind um, that are in the middle of writing a book as we speak or they've completed a book where I kind of look at 2020 as this could be like the final year of the book where, you know – and, and as much as, you know, I, I look, I always look forward to books by people that I admire and I respect. Um, you know, I, I certainly look forward to, I've mentioned both of them multiple times on the show, but like ta Coates, 
Valeria Luiselli. Those are people that I cannot wait until they have another book out. But I kind of look at the book industry as being arguably in the worst shape out of any industry, minus probably the journalism industry, looking and in, going into this depression where I'm thinking to myself, you know what? Yeah, it might ultimately lead to the deaths of a lot of great publishing outlets. But let's not forget the fact that there are so many books out there. And there are also so many great books that already exist that – and this is arguably detrimental uh, and and counterproductive to the whole point of our show. But there is that part of me that's like, well, then just let it all die because <laughs> – you know, well, I, because I mean, you also well, have to take into account a a book or a publisher is only as great as how you can market it. And you know, if you're going to have sort of the attitude of this is the year of the end of the book, books don't always have to exist in physical format. And I think the shift to both digital as well as audiobook format, because let's face it, people having the attention span of a net is yeah. also very profitable because people don't even want to read. So yeah. why not just read it for them. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's now I'm not and, saying, and mind you, that's no. that's a smart way of, of doing it. I just think that, you know, we're we're at a point now where arguably Americans have now more time in the world now than ever to read. I guess my biggest problem and mind you, you know, and this is the thing. And this is, of course, for our listeners to realize, which is, you know, all art is subjective. So. As much as I paint doom and gloom about books, I'm not here to say stop buying books. That, that's that that's almost blasphemous of me to say that. Um, so it, it's kind of like I guess if anything, I'm I'm speaking as one of those people where I already know, you know, the people that I would want to keep following, or even the you know publishers that I'd want to help. Whether you know I, I recently uh, bought there, there's a new history book coming out about los angeles in the 1960s by verso verso has been such an outstanding publishing you know company that i i want to help them out and i want to see them past this nightmare that we're in and you know i mentioned about um miriam gerba's book mean i bought that through coffee house press which you know published the book so it's kind of like we can't rely off of, you know, the publishing industry to survive on their own, and we certainly can't rely on Jeff Bezos to save it, even though the guy makes nine million dollars an hour. No, of but course. it's going to be the it's going to be the combined efforts of authors and publishers alike, because a publisher cannot exist without the author and vice versa. So I'm not saying that we're gonna all get up on our soapboxes to such a height where we're just going to tackle Jeff Bezos to the ground. That's not going to happen. But mm-hmm. if you can find ways to usurp that sort of um, outlet into benefiting independent authors, you know, I'm not saying go pro Amazon or, you know, uh, or no Amazon, but right. I'm saying that if you can use these platforms to elevate yourself to a, a space where, Hey, I'm for independent bookstores, even though I'm juxtaposing it by being on this pretentious platform, as Amazon likes to portray it as, it can also benefit. You know? Yeah, 
It, it's a very Robin Hood approach. I'll give you that. Yeah. However, I think that it is, you know, sort of morally justifiable in not only getting your book out there. And I, again, I sound like such a broken record when I say this, but, you know, not only getting your book out there, but getting it noticed to further independent booksellers, publishers, and especially bookshop.org. Sorry, I just wanted to say I was a little bit skeptical when I read this article, because when you handed it to me, it was a matter of, oh, another one, because this isn't the first time this has happened, and this isn't going to be the last time. Right. I actually recently got in contact with one of their representatives. Uh, oh, okay. I, again, this is not some sort of ham-fisted attempt at advertising, but we do support bookshop.org. Oh, Representative yeah. Sarah High and I were in a discussion about, you know, essentially how this works in the sense of, hey, we're in a pandemic. I hate to be so blunt about it, but what are the royalty rates for, you know, essentially struggling authors who find the books on the site. Through this, I found that it's not a publisher, as I stated before, but it does work in a sense to affiliate marketing. Whereas your books, you will receive 10% commission and the other 10, you'll receive 20% commission, 10%, which will go to other independent bookstores. As an affiliate, you will earn 10% in affiliate revenue, while another 10% of all your sales will go to benefiting indie bookstores from the U.S. We've distributed solely by Ingram at the moment, which, from personal experience, so have I. Uh, I'm mm-hmm. not sure Ingram Spark have shut down their uh, their publishing platform. I remember it was a very brick-and-mortar system. Uh, okay. Uh, so, essentially, she attached these how-to guides on how to set up your affiliate bookstore You add books of your choosing to the market, uh, your market, quote unquote, and whenever someone buys it, you receive that little bit of commission. Now, what kind of interested me about that is it doesn't necessarily have to be your book. It could be any book that if someone happens to buy through your marketplace specifically, you will receive that income, which I found it kind of strange. Um, even in the scummiest of scummy Amazon sewer holes, whenever you buy a book from there, it'll go directly to who published it. Right. Um, from here, though, it kind of seems like you're, you know, and again, someone can correct me if I'm wrong in either whatever platform we have that uh, in, engages the audience outside of just speech to, to sound. If this is what happens in affiliate marketing, I'm a little bit confused as to how it works. Right. If that was the case, I would just pick every single great American novel and put it in my bookshelf in the hopes that someone would get it from my bookshelf. Right. Yeah. Amazon KDP and other publishing platforms online at least allows you to set up a payment profile when someone orders it. But Sarah, I was very nice about it. She helped me set it up and, Again, not sponsored. However, I do encourage you to all set up affiliate marketing programs if you happen to have your own books out there. I've done it myself, and now we wait. <laughs> in essence. So. Yeah, and I I think too that if any if there's any kind of silver lining in all this, where you know the the different different publishing arms kind of 
either they they totally crumble or they just begin to falter. I think people should hopefully take some kind of pride if people are still reading. Um, should hopefully take some pride in whatever bookshops uh, you know are still available to them. I mean, I know there's an indie bookstore relatively close to where I live. Um, like I, I kind of look at it like rather than hound over whatever new material out there that might pique your interest about, I don't know, really sticking it to, you know, the Clintons or something, you know, I guess if anything, try and seek out the kind of stuff that maybe you could teach yourself something or take advantage of a pre-existing IP and something you've never even touched on and completely immerse yourself in it. So like basically what I'm saying is, is that, you know, if you feel, if you fear a blackout of books, then just remember there are still billions of books out there that you could go out and search through and find and buy and read and then put it on your shelf and then read again. It's not like we're in, I mean, we're in uncharted territory, no question, but it's not like it needs to be all doom and gloom. I mean, I, I, and mind you, I say that as somebody who, you know, right now I mentioned it, that I was looking forward to reading it, looking forward to the movie. And you know what? So far I'm liking Dune by Frank Herbert. Um, it's definitely got some Star Wars and Harry Potter kind of vibes to it, but you know, like that's, this is a book that's been around since 1965. You know, I think there's something special about what people could do right now in finding the kinds of books that already exist, picking them up and enjoying the hell out of them. I guess if anything, I I don't fear the death of the book because it just seems farcical. But at the same time, like if it gives us a moment to look at ourselves in the mirror, you know, it's it's not like the film industry where we can expect the big blockbuster movies that you and I aren't going to see. Like we can expect those to come out. Right. You know, I'm, I'm not worried that I'm not going to get a hold of John Bolton's tell all memoir about what it was like working for Trump. I, I just don't care. Um, and I think, you know, if there's people out there that are genuinely concerned about, you know, Oh, well I need to know, I need to know what the United States Senate needed to know. Then, you got bigger problems, my friend. There really is no way to go but forward when it comes to this. And it's mm-hmm. not it's not like I'm looking at it from a glass half empty perspective of, you know, people can't do it in terms of writing the next great American novel. I do think that this quarantine is going to give us all more opportunity to do so, like you stated. Yeah. However, let's keep our wits about us here. I mean, people have already been profiting off of this off of this shit for far too long so well and i think that's that's the danger that's a danger that we have and arguably that could give us uh another american dirt episode where somebody does take advantage i mean and that's just it the situation we're in obviously it's a touchy subject but then again you know janine cummins should have realized that when she wrote american dirt writing about uh you know, refu- refugees coming to the United States, you know, it, it's a touchy subject where people could die. And I think 
you know, if the idea from somebody who wants to write about this era just wants to write, I think that's just it, is that people forget that the whole concept of the great American novel is not about making profit. It's about, you know, kind of like what we want to do with the show, which is reflect back on society. And I think, you know, John Steinbeck wasn't bragging about how much money he made when he wrote the books that he wrote. Um, but by that same token, I mean, that's, that's basically what the publishing industry has become. It's not so much about writing something, you know, for the good of the country or for the good of our people, but it's about what's going to be a bestseller. And, you know, there's something unfortunate about that, but obviously if this is the death knell of how the publishing industry works, then I hope that's the kind of revision that it gets if and when we ever come out of the, the pickle that we're in. So, you know, it, it's kind of like all art, it's like what I said earlier, all art is subjective. If you have an author or a group of authors that you love and you love reading their work, by all means, you know, pick I, I I'm the kind of person that believes in that kind of, you know, do your homework, do your research and read as much of their material as you want. Um, how it feeds into your life is how you deal with it. But I think, you know, hopefully this is a time period that gives people a little bit of moment of pause when it comes to what they consume in terms of reading material. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I honestly thought we were going to get a little bit more heated than that, but I'm glad that we kept it civil and I'm glad that we kind of came to a mutual agreement. Whereas, you know, it, at the end of the day, I used to think, it's funny, I used to think it doesn't matter how you get your art out there, or your work out there, so long as you get it out there. It wasn't even for sake of profit. Mm-hmm. Back then, I used to sort of have this, you know, vanity cloak where, you know, I'm doing this for me. I'm doing this because I want to say that I published a book, I wrote a book. But right. it's it's funny how you mature with age. Funny, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, if anything, you know, or at least the way I've I've kind of reconfigured myself, you know, I we we talked about this in our first episode where my intake of of like political reading is probably going to be very muted in terms of new stuff because nothing seems to change and everything's just so depressing now that it's kind of like why do I need to pick up another expose on the Trump White House? You know, and I think that's where you can find value in reading from history. And on top of that, you know, this this was a line that I, I think I addressed it once in regards to um, my new out, outlook on books, which is uh, the Christopher Hitchens approach, which is read from people that make you think why you bother and, uh, you know, people that you read their work and it makes you it's basically like this is why you write and in our case it's like this is why i create content of any kind and you know if anything it's it's meant to be a kind of stimulant it's meant to be something that's going to keep me going and keep me creating stuff you know does it always relate not really but i think it's certainly something that 
I always have kind of in the back of my mind whenever I'm creating any anything new. I, I always have something kind of on tab in case I need it, um, like Dune, which is still uh, which is sitting right next to me. So uh, they haven't had Worm Sign yet, so uh, that that'll be exciting. <laughs> Time will tell. Time will tell. So speaking of time, uh, we are sadly coming to the end of the show. Again, quick shout out to our, uh, not our sponsors, but our hosts for Mars on Life. Uh, if we could just run down the list one more time, uh, thank each and every one of them. Well, actually, and then another thing as well that I, I want to give a quick shout out to, um, we've talked about this a few times um recently uh about the los angeles artist census um recently tatiana who uh sort of controls that uh instagram page uh recently shared a link for people to help out artists in absolutely dire need um that link is artistrelief.org and uh this is a way to support artists during the covid19 crisis uh kind of paraphrasing from the post uh, a coalition of national arts grant makers have come together to create an emergency initiative to offer financial and informational resources to artists across the United States. Um, so whatever you can do, whatever you're able to donate or contribute, uh, please head on over to artistrelief.org. Um, if anything, not only do we want to build a collective for artists, but we also want to help artists at this point in time. Um, so whatever you can pitch in or help out, please do. Um you know, these are, are weird times for the arts, and, you know, it's not always helpful in terms of material for the show, but that's okay. We can still make it on by, um, especially when it comes to what exactly the arts are, which we'll get on that uh, for our special 10th episode. Uh, Sebastian, where can the good people find you? So when it comes to me, we have both Twitter and Instagram. Instagram is at Dr. Sebi, that is at D-R-S-E-B-B-Y. And Twitter, it's also at Dr. Sebi with an underscore. So it's at D-R underscore S-E-B-B-Y. There you'll find me, as it states quite frankly on Twitter, I use it to post art and politically incorrect opinions for the sake of humor. It's gotten me far. (laughs) (laughs) But and, uh, that's and, where you can find me. But go ahead. And for those of you that are looking for more of a newsy angle, uh, <laughs> hey! very, very, very different, very different from the film newsies. Uh, thankfully, um, you can find me on Twitter at Mancini R A. Uh, that's M A N C I N I R A. Uh, and on Instagram, you can find me at Mancini Ryan. Uh, that is where I will be sharing whatever the locals have to say about uh, COVID-19, as well as watching Walter Jeffrey meltdown videos. <laughs> yeah, that's my time. That's my time. God, what a be- what a time to stay inside. You know? Yeah, just stay inside and watch a French bulldog uh, scream scream his head off. It's uh, it's life. And like every single sorority girl will tell you, on three, wash your hands. All right. (laughs) You've been listening to Mars on Life. 
please make sure that you find us over on social media at Mars on Life Show on both Twitter and on Instagram. And on top of that, you can find this show on Anchor, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Our artwork is done by Zachary Erbrick, and our intro music is Space Explorers by Kevin McLeod. I've been Ryan Mancini. My co-host, as always, is Sebastian Shug. And just remember, if you keep on going, you'll make it to Mars. Mars.